Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is July the 26th, 2017, and this is episode 2051 of the Survival Podcast, and it is Wednesday, it's interview day. I've got a guy I'll be bringing on the air in just a minute, his name is Rob Kish. And Rob's been part of the Perma Ethos community. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm giving away today's topic. Part of the Survival Podcast community for a very long time, all the way back to the, the point where I originated the, the original concept of what we were calling Perma Ethos at the time. And kind of as an intro to today's show in the, the leadoff segment here, I'm going to probably go a little longer uh, with talking about the show's content before we take care of some basic housekeeping. Because it's going to be necessary for some of you guys. Because I think that if we don't explain the background of what was Permaethos here, then a lot of people will be lost in today's interview when we reference back to it. This is really not about Permaethos at all. This is about Rob's attempt to basically make my original idea for Permaethos a reality. So many are familiar with what Permaethos became. We partnered up with... Uh, uh, a gentleman named Kevin and a gentleman named Charlie and Nick Ferguson and myself and Josiah Wallingford. And Charlie and Kevin had a farm in West Virginia. They still do. It's called Elijah Spring. And we did a lot of really great things on that farm, but Permaethos never really became what I wanted it to, even in its second generation. Eventually, it became an online educational platform for all things permaculture and sustainable living. And in that model, five partners didn't work and we sold what was what was the company what was left of it basically to Josiah Wallingford and said go forth be fruitful and do your thing in the educational space because you're good at that and that's what it became that was never what it originally was supposed to be what Permaethos was in my mind when I first conceived of it many years ago was an intentional community and the, the original idea for the community went something like this. We would, we would get together a group of people that we would call investors, and those investors would also, be, um, would also be residents, and then residents as well. And to make this affordable, we would go find a piece of land, maybe 100, maybe 200 acres, wherever it was, and we could use the investors' money, who had a little bit bigger stake in things, and a potential for some ROI to buy the land and then to, 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 to be able to develop everything and have a common area and things like that, and to make it very affordable, we would do something. And the numbers were just flat out of my head. Like, you know, you basically get a 99-year lease on an acre, let's say, and your down payment on that is like $2,000, and then your monthly lease fee is like, I don't know, 200 bucks. So basically, if anybody really wanted to do it could. With a 99-year lease, it was, for all intents and purposes, a purchase. And that there'd be some sort of component to your lease that guaranteed the rate wouldn't go up except to service additional property taxes. That kept the, the community viable um, and gave it a source of revenue. And the people that were the initial investors would receive some sort of ROI. And then the ongoing revenue, kind of like... I don't know, um, HOA fees, but no HOA involved, would go to do things like install ponds, put in common buildings, maybe put in things like a laundromat so that if you were building an off-grid home, that was one thing you didn't have to worry about, and, and, and try to build that as a, an intentional community. 
And as I looked at pieces of land around me, and I knew if I was going to do something like that, I had to be within half a day's drive. If I couldn't drive there in four to five hours, I could not do that type of community. And into that came Kevin. And Kevin said, hey, I got this farm. We could do something sort of like that. But they really didn't want to build like this community and lease out acreage. So we took a shot at something that was never really what the original vision was. Well, our special guest today, Rob Kish, has been working to make my original view with a few twists of his own a reality since I started talking about it. And I think that's a good thing. And I always wanted, when I was talking about doing Permaethos 1.0, if we call it that, um, no one to like wait on me. If you could figure out a way to do it first, go ahead. And I had a lot of legal issues that came up that steered me. Um, and we're going to talk about that today. We're talking about what Rob's doing. And I'll tell you right now, I don't really know exactly what Rob's doing. I have a very brief outline for discussion today from Rob, and we'll go on that journey of exploration together. But in the back of my mind, and I've been approached by many people over the last you know several years of doing the original idea. And I mean, I have no shortage of people with land and opportunity. My thing has always been some things that we'll talk about with Rob and what he thinks about them, such as, for me, for this to be viable to me, I think that you have to get into a position where everybody has their own piece and they can do whatever they want. Some very basic rules like, I don't know, you don't dump toxic sludge on your neighbor's yard or something like that. But but pretty much, like that's your piece. If you want a house there, you build it however you want within the groundwork of what's allowable where we are. In other words, there is certain things you can't do to stay to the county or the city or whatever. We're doing this and you can't stop us because they will. So we can't put the whole thing at risk for one person. Um, number two... There has to be some site, some piece of it that is really community uh, property that that enables people who are living off grid to share resources in, in a way that otherwise would be difficult. Three, I think the ideal person for this is a person like myself. I don't mean to run it; I mean to be there. People, there's many of you like me in the audience, and that means that you run your own business, you run a lifestyle business. You can work from anywhere. If they had a DSL connection on the moon, you could run your business from the moon. But they'd have to have the DSL connection along with an oxygen environment. But we have that here, an oxygen-nitrogen atmosphere. So there has to be some way that we can get high-speed Internet to it so that it's financially viable for people that want to live there. Because I think if it's only a vacation thing and people don't live there, it doesn't work. And you have to have some, even if you have a very... Spartan lifestyle, you have just some means of, of, of providing for yourself, some means of economy. So those are all the types of things. And then, you know, what really crushed the original idea were two things. Number one, I wanted to build something where people could get a return on their investment, including the members that weren't initial investors. If the thing became profitable, to return profit like a co-op. And I had a guy from the FTC come up to me at a conference who said, I like what you're doing, I love what you're doing, I wish you could do it, but if you try to do it that way, they're going to put you in federal prison. And I said, okay, well, I'm not going to do that. And I had people get mad at me for that. And I'm like, well, if you want to do it and go to federal prison, you can, but I'm not going to freaking Club Fed. All right, it ain't happening. So that was one thing. And then the other thing was a lot of the land that I looked at around here, even if you did it off-grid, they called it a subdivision. And it was millions of dollars to develop the land so that they would give you permission to develop the land. And they wouldn't even tell you that, okay, then we'll give you the permission. So one piece of land we looked at, it was really amazing for this. 
and it would have cost over a million dollars just to put the initial road through it with no other infrastructure that would have been required for the city of Corsicana to give us permission to ask them for permission. If you want to realize how stupid government can be. And this was the big thing. This land wasn't even in the city of Corsicana. It was hell and gone from Corsicana. It was unincorporated county land, like I have here. But unlike what I have here, they had passed some kind of ruling that certain unincorporated lands fell under the jurisdiction of the city of Corsicana, which is kind of a pit, by the way. Sorry if you live there. So... I, I, I think this idea of people that share a common vision of freedom and liberty and sustainability um, living together in one place, and some of those people being full-time and some of those people seeing it more like a bug-out location, a vacation home, a seasonal home, that's a fantastic idea. I just see a lot of hurdles in the way of it. And I'm interested to hear what Rob has up his sleeve for trying to make this happen. Maybe going smaller at first is a way to do it. Because I think if we could do one of these... We could do a hundred. And if we could do a hundred, we could do a thousand. If we do a thousand, we change the world. But you got to do one first. And I have to admit, after my attempt, um, which was a serious attempt, and I'm not even talking about what went on with Eliza Spring Farm and the farm and the interns and all that. I'm talking about the, the thing we never actually did. We just researched it and we went and we shopped land and we checked re regulations and I ran countless scenarios and ran into the FTC and a threat from a well-meaning person who's like, I'm not threatening you because I want to I'm just telling you, that's what they're going to do and checking with a lawyer and going, yeah, that's what they're going to do it seems like an idea that has to happen at some point, but I've been unwilling to take another shot at it until now so we'll bring Rob on in a bit to talk about that before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day Hey folks, when I started TSP over eight years ago now, the first company to ever offer to sponsor the show was Safecastle. And they've remained a loyal sponsor ever since February of 2009. And did you know they give away a lifetime discount membership to all MSB members? They do. And that can save you big money on everything you could imagine for your prepping needs. And with Safecastle, I do mean everything. Check out safecastle.com today to learn more. Guys, right now, do you know I have personally about a hundred trees, vines, and bushes from Bobwell's Nursery on my property? Over time, they will produce season after season of edible products. They look great, too. Bobwell's is always my first choice when buying new trees, vines, and shrubs for my permaculture work. Check them out at bobwellsnursery.com today. All right, folks, let me remind you that the main way that you can support the work that we do here at the Survival Podcast is by joining the Member Support Brigade, or MSB for short, And you hear me talk all the time about the over 60 discounts that you get, but let me tell you some of the other things you get. How about nine free ebooks, including Planting Trees the Low Cost Easy Way, How to Build Top Bar Beehives, Basics of Sprouting, Building an EPAC Kit, Getting Your Household in Order, Building a Traditional Clay Oven, Building Aquaponics Systems, Secrets of Ballistic Strikings, and Squanto's Garden. All of those are free ebooks that you get only as an MSB member. You can also download MP4 versions of many of our YouTube videos. You get zip files of every episode of TSP ever produced. And how about videos of the workshops here at Nine Mile Farm that we do in the spring and the fall? All of that and more available as an MSB member. You can sign up for as little as five bucks a month to give it a shot or $50 a year. That comes out to 18.3 cents an episode. And with that, I want to say, hey, Rob, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks, Jay. It's great to be here. Hey, I have you on to talk about basically 
intentional communities, alternative housing, things like that. Uh, I've kind of given the audience a really good intro as to where you're coming from and some history of permaethos so that if we reference that at some point, it makes sense. Uh, but before we even get into that, can you kind of give the audience kind of the background? Who the heck is Rob Kish, man? Like, take us back to like high school, you're spacing out in study hall or something, you try to figure out what to do with your life, and how do you end up where you are in life? Sure, sure. Um, so, uh, I was uh, in, really into architecture when I was very young, and um, I... Uh, Studied uh, uh, mechanical drawing in in, uh, in high school, and um, when it came time to actually get into uh, architecture, I had this uh, come to Jesus moment and realized that this was going to be mostly about sales and not so much about uh, the design. And when I realized that, I was working with a uh, architecture firm. Um, that uh, it was part of an explorer program with scouts, and um, it just wasn't for me. Um, so I fell back on my backup plan, which was electronics, which is where I am today. And um, right now I'm a um, manufacturing engineer tech for uh, a medical engineering company. Um, but I'm still hoping to go ahead and build my own house. Okay. Cool, man. So... Let's talk about how you're coming at this. I know you're, you're working on something. What, what I have in your notes is that you've been working to try to make the original version, we'll call it Permaethos 1.0, which is nothing like what we actually did with Permaethos uh, in the end, like a reality. And I think part of where you're coming from that is just there are problems with, you mentioned you know, getting your own house. Like that's a difficult thing for people to do today. So coming at it from that angle, What do you see as problems with the housing industry as a whole today? Um, the biggest problem is that they just cost too much. Um, okay. <laughs> the, uh, the way that houses are built today, with stick frame, um, brick and mortar, it, it costs too much. Um, I found a way to go ahead and try to reduce that. Um, I got it down to about a quarter. I'm working on making it closer to an eighth uh, of the cost of housing. Um, so one of these uh, 1,300 square foot homes that I'm trying to build, um, the actual uh, sticker price for building the house is around thirty, thirty-five thousand. So that's 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 with you what you've gotten it down to then, right? Because that's that's pretty low. Right. I mean, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, expense is one thing, definitely. And there's, of course, underlying land expense. Um, that's gotten insane. In, in some markets, it's really high. Some markets, it's not as much. But in the end, most people do live in a house built with sticks and bricks, relatively square shape with a you know a pointy roof. And you, know, you can get financing for that also. With that in mind, since it does house the majority of people in, in our country, you know, I wouldn't say it's the world, but in, in the developed world, um, what does the housing industry do well? Um, they make pretty decent homes. Um, there's a lot of a, a lot of uh, flexibility, um, although the uh, the state likes to go ahead and, and mess with that as much as they can. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, they're they're very comfortable compared to 100 years ago or even 50 years ago. Um, it's just that uh, the way that we build them just doesn't uh, 
doesn't lend itself to customization as well as it could. Um, and the cost is probably the biggest factor. Um, I know that a lot of um, teenagers in the audience today are going to have a very hard time in the future trying to buy a house um, from what you've said on the air. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I think it's one of the, one of the biggest hurdles people have. I'm watching right now in my market in particular, Dallas-Fort Worth, which has become one of the most phenomenal economic growth markets um, in the country. A huge influence, influx of young people, young professionals uh, from the trades and from you know the, the college-level professionals move into the area. And what I've watched over the last 10 years is landlords squeeze tighter and tighter and push that rental level to as high as they can and still keep the occupancy up. And what's mm -hmm. eventually happened is those young people looked around and went, well, I can keep paying $1,500 a month for this two-bedroom apartment, or I can go get a three-bedroom house with a mortgage payment of $1,200 all in. Well, that's what I'm going to do. And then that turned around and created this crazy boom in the housing market. And you mentioned government screwing things up. So like what the local governments did, they went, we want more money. So they put building restrictions. And like a lot of places around here, you can't build a house under 2,000 square feet anymore. Yes. And they do that so they can charge more in property taxes. So the houses that do exist are 1,300, 1,400 square foot houses, which is plenty big enough for the average American nuclear family with one or two kids and a dog and a cat, you know. Um, they put a premium on them. So houses that were selling for 110,000 10 years ago or 90,000 10 years ago are selling for close to 200,000 now. And and that's just never been the case in this market. This has always been a market you could move to and buy more house than where you came from from a, unless you were coming from like I don't know rural Arkansas or something like that, you could always buy more with the same money. And that I'm seeing that change even here, so I can't imagine what's happening in other parts of the country. Yeah, even around here um, the minimum square footage is 1200 square feet. And where are you? Uh, which, uh, I live in uh, uh, Cleveland, Ohio, Okay. Uh, Lake County area, and um, I live about a mile from the lake. Okay. Intensely, 1,300 square foot as being your kind of your bogey for what you're trying to do. Let's talk about some alternative style housing and some of the things that you, you often hear in the permaculture world, you know, just go do this, right? That's You know, what I've learned over the years from individual houses to communities All those pretty drawings, right? You see, like in the designer's manual or in somebody's, you know, concept or whatever, they're a lot easier to draw than they are to do, right? Right. So right. let's talk about some of these different options, like earth bermed housing. What are some of the advantages? What are some of the drawbacks of, of going that route? Okay, so earth bermed uh, allows you to um, take advantage of some of the uh, thermal inertia of the earth. Um, it's It's got its problems. Um, Rob Roy uh, wrote a book about uh, underground homes, and he cited in there that um, he had what he called an energy nosebleed, um, <laughs> which meant that uh, all this heat was getting sucked out of his home. And uh, he figured out ways around it. Uh, eventually, he wound up building another home that was a little bit better built, and uh, he was very happy with it. So, And there's... Let's talk about just a few of these different things. Let's talk about PSP building systems and Ehler-style homes. And for those out there that might want to Google that, Ehler is spelled O-E-H-L-E-R. Anyway, right. Can we talk kind of about those and, and where they fit in things? Right. Uh, so Mike Ehler, uh, 
he designed a home back in the 70s that originally cost him $50. Um, that's pretty cheap, even in 1970s dollars. But it's not a home that you and I would want to live in. Uh, it was uh, basically a shack. Um, and he came up with these really creative ideas on how to um, make really inexpensive homes. Um, but he really wasn't uh, uh, followed very much, you know, even though he went to architecture schools and talked to the kids there. They just got their eyes glazed over um, because they didn't really look like a home. Um, so my goal was to actually make a home that looks like the ones down the street. Okay. And uh, you've mentioned in passing a couple times now thermal masses. Can we talk about what that is and how that plays into all these different structures? Okay. Um, so uh, there was a man by the name of um, Mike Haight, um, and um, he was a physics professor, and he wrote a book called Passive Annual Solar Heat. Um, and that was uh, a really interesting book. It really has a lot of good ideas in it, but everything was passive. Um, and I liked, I liked his book. Um, he really has some good ideas on how to store heat um, in the earth. And um, you, uh, you're able to um, capitalize on the heat from the summer in the winter and the cool from the winter in the summer. Um, but like I said, it's all passive, um, which is great until you have a summer that isn't as hot as the rest of them uh, or a winter that's colder. Um, so I came up with a, something, a little uh, quirk on how to uh, make it an active system without still, with still not using any uh, moving parts. Okay, so... I mean, one of the things we want to talk about then is what we would, because you're kind of alluding to there, is what we'd call passive annual heat storage. Yes. Can you kind of explain that? So, um, <laughs> in, the, uh, in the summer, you have plenty of heat. It's always available. Uh, sometimes, it's, you know, most of the time, it's more than you really need. Um, but in the winter, you don't have that. You have uh, excess of uh, uh, cold. Um, to try to go ahead and get the heat to store in the earth and then be released all winter um, is kind of the goal. Um, but what you can do, you can do this a lot of different ways. Uh, a lot of people use rock boxes um, and they collect um, their solar uh, energy from a, a solar heater and then put it into this rock box. The rock box holds onto it for a little while and then it releases it when the temperature gets lower. Um, and that works in most of the, most parts of the country. Um, but uh, so um, another way to uh, store heat is through water. Uh, and you can go ahead and, and heat solar heat hot water and store it through the uh, summer and into the winter and then release it in um, a radiator or something like that. Um, what... Uh, uh, Mr. Haight did was he figured out that, hey, we could do this with uh, just the earth around your home. You don't have to import it. It's already there. Uh, all you got to do is insulate it. And the way he did that was he 
put like uh, to give you a, a, a visual reference, like a big umbrella over his house of insulation. Um, and there's holes in that insulation that allow windows and doors and so forth. But it goes all the way around the home and about 20 feet around the outside of the home. Um, and then what he uses is a um, a low heating system and a high heating system. Um, they go basically the lowest point in the house and the, the highest point in the house. And they draw air in different directions depending on the time of day um, just through um, solar heating of the inside of the room. Gotcha. Now... This stuff has limitations, though. I mean, you already mentioned, like, when you have a winter that's colder than normal or a summer that's hotter than normal or a summer that's colder than normal, you're trying to mm -hmm. bank this stuff. And, I mean, I when I hear things like people storing energy in water or rocks, what it makes me think of is I grew up in the coal region of Pennsylvania. We had a coal furnace down in the, 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 uh, the basement. And the whole house was heated with cast iron radiators. So you've got cast iron and you got water. And you basically heat it to steam and you pump it through the radiators. And if you wanted it to be hotter in a room, you turn the radiator on by opening the valve. You want it to be cooler, you turned it off or turned it down, right? And right. we even had a thermostat with that. They kind of, like, controlled when it would let steam through at all to the radiators. And mm -hmm. I'll tell you flat out that if you had the house nice and warm and for some reason something went wrong and the, you, you, that system wasn't working, it definitely stayed hot in that house longer in a cold winter than it would have if you had central heat and poof, the power went off. There's, there was definitely a residual heat that, that, that was there, you know what I'm saying. But if it would have been off for like a day and it was cold out, the freaking house would have been cold. So, yeah, that house isn't earth-burned and it's not a, thermal, a, a huge thermal mass and all, but it is a house built from the 1800s with, you know, oak two by tw you know, uh, like, you know, oak planks that are, you know, thicker than anything you'd find today. So it was, it was much better at holding that stuff in. So while it may be not as useful as a earth berm structure, it does inherently show the limitations of what these types of kind of battery-based, you know, and I don't mean battery like a battery put in a flashlight, but basically you're turning a thermal mass into a heat or a cool battery. It shows its limitation there with a fully passive system. So you have some stuff in your notes that talks about turning a passive system into an active system without adding moving parts. So so how do we do that, or what are you talking about there? So basically what we're doing is we're taking our um, your, our solar hot water heaters, which would already be in the house anyways. Um, we're putting a glass box around them, and um, we're drawing the heat from inside the, uh, from inside the home um, out. So in the summer what this would do is act like a, a whole house fan. But it would be pulling from both the uh, the high points of the home and the low points of the home, and it would draw all of that out, and it would draw it into um, those uh, earth uh, the, those tubes that um, they go about a hundred feet out, um, and uh, like I said, there's a, a high side and a low side. Um, each room will have something similar to that. Some rooms will actually have uh, a peak that you can go ahead and, and capitalize on. Some rooms won't. Um, but um, you're going to draw the air through the house, uh, through the ground, and then through the house, which allows you to cool it during the summer uh, pretty effectively and go ahead and store that, uh, that, that uh, heat for the, uh, 
for the winner. Um, but you can also uh, fall back to the original configuration where during the day um, the heat rises in the house and it gets drawn out naturally through the upper uh, uh, heat tubes. And then um, you can also, at night, um, the thermal cycle switches and it goes out through the lower system. So it all, as, your, as your house is cooling, um, the air drops and then goes out through that lower system. Um, but, yeah, that's, that's the basic idea of it. So one of the, the alternative structures that we've, we've had some, probably not a lot, but we've had some discussion on uh, TSP is the Wolfati, which is something that Paul Wheaton came up with kind of expanding on Mike Eller's ideas. Um, I've never been 100% sold on Paul's claims about the Wolfati. I think it's an interesting idea. I know they've built some sort of... And, and frankly, Paul's done more to actually get some of these ideas done with, with alternative housing and intentional community than most people in the industry. So I don't want to, I don't want to crap on the guy because he's a friend and all. But I've just never been, you know, I've never felt romantic about the Wolfati. And you say it kind of gives you a bad vibe. So I think we kind of agree there. Where are you coming from with that, though? Um, one of the ways I'm coming from that is um, if I get, went into a um, uh, a, uh, a city office and uh, ask for a permit for a Wafati, they're going to say a what? So <laughs> I don't want to do that. Uh, so what I call it is a um, uh, earth-bermed um, pole building with a uh, crawl space. And that satisfies them. They don't have to you know, think about it very much. Um, and considering that I'm calling these cabins instead of houses, um, it, it clears away a lot of that uh, that baggage, um, but um, I, I like a lot of his ideas. I like that you know when he uh, has something that's not working, um, he's more than willing to go ahead and say, "Hey, look, we screwed up. This is this is I what did. you don't want to," do. um, which is great. Um, and there are areas where it's going to be you know not difficult, but you got to really think about how to insulate it properly which is uh, the, the biggest thing I got out of uh, the Wafati. Yeah, I mean, what gave me a bad vibe about it, I think it was, you know, like seven years ago I brought Paul on the show for the first time and he had a bunch of stuff he wanted to talk about. And he talked about this Wafati and, that, you know, how it was the greatest thing ever. And basically if you try to build a house that's an earth burn house, you don't do it this way, you're wrong. And then, like, right toward the end he's like, so I still haven't ever built one yet. At least now he has, right? So, like, <laughs> what do you think I think? Like, really? Like, I brought you on to talk about this amazing structure, and you talk about it from tip to toe, end to end, and it's got the Mike Ehler blessing, and and, uh, and you've, you've not built, like, one. Um, so that kind of threw me when he did that. But I think there's a lot of potential to it, and I know they've, they've built some. I don't, like, religiously follow. I know there's, like, a thread over at Permies where they, like, constantly are updating what's going on there, and I probably pay more attention to it than I do, so I don't know exactly where they are. I will agree with you, though, that Paul has always been the guy that, like, well, this is going to work, and I know it's going to work, and if you, you don't agree with me, you're a dummy, and then, like, three weeks later, you're like, so we did that, and it totally didn't work, and I was totally wrong, and we screwed that up, and here's what we're going to do to try to make it work now. 
And I think it's good to have that much conviction even when you're wrong because if you don't have it, you don't try it and you don't figure out what's wrong. So, like I said, I don't want to crap on his freight or anything, but like, there's always been some things there. But like, you were going more toward the terminology, and I think that's a very good point. Like when we did the Permethos farm, we needed insurance. So, like, if somebody cut their leg off with a chainsaw, we didn't all go bankrupt. And so we're trying to get insurance, and they're like. Well, you know, what's your mission statement? I'll just pull it straight off of the corporate formation. You know, we we provide education and design consulting and implementation of permaculture farms. We we could not get an insurance company to talk about underwriting us. Mm-hmm. So we took the word permaculture out. Yeah, I don't know if you know this, but I was my uh, Permethos founding member. I do, I do. But yeah, we took the word out. We just took the word permaculture out. We just did the same thing and just said farms. Mm-hmm. Okay, here you go. Off you go, here's your insurance. And so that's an example of not even substituting a word to deal with kind of the state and the man and the institutions of the world. But when you, I, I think you're dead on. When you use a word they don't understand, you know, and I wonder, like, even the whole Earthship thing, like, how many people have tried to get a permit to build an Earthship? And if they didn't call it an Earthship, they would have got their permit. Right. Yeah, I, I really don't know the answer to that because I know there's some jurisdictions that are just, they're just dicks. I mean, seriously, they're just assholes. They don't want anything that doesn't fit exact. But there's other jurisdictions where, like, they'll let you do pretty much anything you want, but if they don't know what it is, then no. Because it's, I guess the bureaucracy world, and the bureaucracy world goes into the private world and into the public world as well. No one gets fired for saying no. Right? I mean, that's really the, the, the... The obstacle that you're up against. If a, a building inspector says no, he might get overturned, but he won't get fired. If a person mm-hmm. issuing a permit says no, you might go through a different recourse, find somebody else, convince them otherwise, and get a yes, but they'll never get fired. If they say yes when they should have said no, that is like the one thing that will get them fired. Or right. so, you know, possibly get the city or the county or the township or the insurance company or whatever sued. Those are the types of things. And I think it's very defensive. It's like defensive medicine. Like, you go in with a hangnail and they order, like, a CAT scan, right? Because they don't want to get sued that they missed something. And, and I think that we have that same permeation in, in the housing industry. And then we have, like, this, this massive industry whose whole goal in life is to not let these technologies come out. I know some people think that's conspiracy theory, but, but I mean, I don't. I mean, I think it's pretty blatant and obvious. Um So I think that's another issue that we have, you know, out there in, in this world of trying to do things differently. Right. Right. Plus, I tried to make everything backwards compatible. So if you need to put a forced air system in, it's not hard, and it can still uh, be worked into the home. There's more than enough room. Um, you could also go ahead and use uh, other technologies. Uh, in-ground heating would be a really good one, um, and. There's there's uh, like hot water systems. Um, you don't have to have a solar system. In fact, uh, there's two um, uh, tankless water heaters in the, the house that I designed. Um, and the reason is is um, you never know. You could have a really dark winter. So it's always good to have that backup anyways. Plus, I wanted the house to be able to be sold as a house without too much work. You know what? That's one of the biggest issues that there are. And it's it's not just a government issue. It's a loan issue. So, mm-hmm. for example, like this had nothing to do with really alternative housing at all. 
There was a house that I looked at buying when we were getting ready to move back to Texas. It was like almost 6,000 square feet. The kitchen, if you were to just build this kitchen, would have cost $70,000 to build this kitchen. I'm talking the cabinets, the flooring, the countertops, the appliances. And I think that was me looking at it going absolute low end in my head. Mm-hmm. House was for sale for two hundred forty nine thousand with seven and a half acres, and it's right in this beautiful part of Mansfield with wonderful soils and all. I'm like, done. Can't do it. Why? Because the whole reason it's for sale for about a quarter million anyway is because no one can get financing on it because it was round. Right now, I want to be clear: this wasn't an earthworm structure, right? This wasn't an underground house. This was simply a dome house, a geodesic dome structure. And the reason you couldn't get financing for it is you couldn't get a valid appraisal with comps to go to the mortgage company and say, this is the value of the home. The appraisers in the area wouldn't appraise it. Which, I mean, the, the, the city had no problem appraising it to tax the guy that owned it, right? And so I think that like if we're doing alternative housing, we have two choices. We can either do them so they are close enough to the norm that when the part because you have to have an exit strategy with real estate you have you might right. want to move I mean people do it all the time that's why there's companies for moving right so you have right. to have an exit strategy because your life might change your desires might change whatever and if you don't have a way for people to be able to go and get a bank loan to buy a house you have drastically reduced your buying pool we either have to fix it that way or we have to come up and this seems very very difficult to do in the short term, we have to create our own alternative finance solutions where people can actually get financing regardless. And I think that's complicated, more complicated than trying to fit in, you know, kind of make the peg fit for now. And there, there is another option. Okay. Um, to, to build a house that they can approve without any questions asked and then convert it. How do you, how do you mean that? Okay, if you go into it, into this uh, with the intention in mind of making this alternative energy home and you build it so that it'll take those systems without any modifications whatsoever and then you go ahead and put a regular roof on it, then you put a uh, regular uh, heating system, regular you know, uh, hot water system, whatever, uh, into this home and then if, uh, over time replace those systems uh, put uh, earth on the uh, roof and the walls. Uh, it is something you can phase in, okay. uh, which may be easier to approve. No, I, I think we're on the same page there. I'm talking more about just even the structure of these homes, right? Like, So it has to look from the outside like most houses. Like, I guess earth on the roof, you could, you, that'll fly. But if it doesn't look like... Like when somebody looks at it, if they don't look at it and go, that's that's a typical house, I think that's where the financing issues come. Right. So that kind of, again, takes domes and stuff like that out. So let's talk a little bit about permaethos, because that's what's kind of led you into this path of trying to figure all this stuff out. Um, to be fair to permaethos, one of the things you wanted to talk about is like what actually happened with Elijah Springs and, and, and permaethos, I guess we'd call it 2.0. The... Vision of Permaethos was never, the, the original vision was nothing like what we tried to do at Elijah Springs. Uh, but there were certainly some things there that didn't work. 
Um, how do you feel that went? What do you feel actually happened with Elijah Spring? Well, um, I think the biggest problem is we didn't plan for enough community. There, were, there weren't enough people there uh, to trade with each other, to trade with the neighbors. There just wasn't. Um, it, it was one family that, um, I mean, it wasn't really even a family. Charlie and, uh, uh, I'm sorry, I can't remember the other Kevin. person's Kevin, yes. Um, they, there, there was just we we came, we came in there uh, for uh, one project, and it was kind of surprising me how few people there really were around. Um, if you're going to go ahead and build a community, you need a community. You need a lot of people. Uh, I think that uh, 20 homes is pretty much the minimum, uh, and probably like 50 is probably the maximum you'd really want in one area. Um, but that's so that everyone can go ahead and call on each other. You need plumbing done. This person can do it. You need eggs. That person does that. Um, where with Permethos, um, at least at Elijah Springs, um, there really wasn't a market in the area. Um, there wasn't really – everything was far away. And the, the nearest Walmart was, what, about three hours away? Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's absolutely spot on. I think I mean, part of the issue I have with the way we're approaching this is, so Elijah Spring was never meant to be a multi-person community, right? Yes. Right, so that was never supposed to be. So that was the original idea, but that was never what we tried there. We tried to build a sustainable farm, and it's interesting that you say that we didn't want enough people. I think one of the things that we really screwed up – is we let way too many people show up in the beginning before we knew what to do with them. And we ended up spending a huge amount of our budget feeding people who were there working hard. And I think the other thing we lacked was, like, Joe was the guy we could send there, and then we brought in Mike and Jesse, and they did the best they could. But, like, one of my mistakes with even trying to do it the way we did it was the fact that it was West Virginia, not just the remoteness you know. Like, I've said that, like, if I try to do this again, it's something I'm going to steward. If I can't drive there in half a day, I'm not freaking doing it. I felt like we didn't have the strong leadership to make that work. But then the other side of it was, I think, that what you're getting on with the sustainable community, and that's really what I want to talk about more, because we can, you know, beat down the mistakes made with, with Elijah Spring all we want, but it was never supposed to be that community. The, the whole point of a community would be that a person has, like, their space or their area, and then this interaction going on. And I think the, the problem that you get if you try to do this as a farm, rather than more something like approaching like a neighborhood that happens to have farms or farm-like things going on, is that you need someone then to be in charge. Right? And that person can't just be in charge by title and name. They have to be capable of being in charge, and then you have to, to drive it like a, 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 a going concern. Whereas a community is like... No one has to be in charge of my neighborhood, right? We, in fact, no one is because we're unincorporated, and yet everybody can interact and do their own thing. And I think that that's kind of more of the model that that we need to be talking about. So, like, if we were going to you know, scratch everything and start today, what what would you do? Well, the biggest thing I would do is choose a location that has uh, markets nearby. Mm. Um, so the biggest problem with Elijah Springs, or even um, if you were to go further out in Texas, um, in order to go ahead and get uh, cheap access to land, um, you wind up uh, sacrificing the market. So you have no one to sell to. 
which is okay if you're all internet-based, but most of us are going to be into food, and food doesn't really travel well. So the biggest thing is uh, finding a place that has inexpensive land that's close to cities. Um, I actually live in an area that's like that. Um, the poorest county in, in Ohio is Ashtabula County, and it sits right next to Lake County, which is the most affluent. So it's actually not that hard to get uh, um, uh, a cheap land that's close to um, all the markets that are in the area. Um, we have uh, within two hours of me is Cleveland, uh, Pittsburgh, um, Akron, and Canton. Um, and there's a lot of areas in between like Menor, which are very close and have very high populations of people that are foodies um, and really like, uh, say, for example, quail eggs, um, just so that, you know, it's something different and they don't have to have the same things all the time. Um, but there's also uh, the, 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 the poor parts of the uh, country who are needing things like um, uh, the wood-burning heaters from uh, uh, Paul Wheaton's um, uh, videos. I'm trying to remember what that's called. Rocket mass uh, heaters. The rocket mass heaters. Um, being able to make shippable cores, for example, would be uh, another project. Uh, another project might be uh, building um, uh, garden bots, <laughs> similar to the uh, uh, farm bot, but uh, made for a smaller scale. Are not necessarily for a smaller scale than what scale than what they originated originally planned, but certainly not for a farm. Um, and we're we're capable of doing that in this area. There's a lot of electronics people. There's a lot of um, uh, engineers. Uh, there's a lot of all that stuff going on. Plus, you have a lot of um, places to go, things to do. Uh, it, it's not remote in any way. No, I think that, like, you're dead on with the location. I think the location is one of the most important things, and you have to balance being far enough away to be able to do what you want without being interfered with, with having someone to trade with, someone to market with. And then, like you mentioned, that like most people would be in a food. I don't even know that that's the case. I think if you put together a community like this with, say, you know, 20 families or 30 families or 40 families, you would probably have some people that just. They're going to have a job and go to work every day like anybody else. That's right. Well, if yeah, you're be close, close enough to yeah. a market, then you can drive to work. And I know some people, the idea of dry, driving an hour to work is just, oh, my God. No. Man, there are millions of people that do that every day. I did it for 10 years of my life. So if you're within an hour of like a place where a person can hold a job, it's doable. When you're within three hours, it's not. Um so that I think is important. Then having that market to trade with, uh, you know, and trade w whatever you're producing for freaking dollars for that matter, because that's what most people use. And it doesn't just have to be food. Like you were mentioning rocket, rocket mass heaters and, and stuff like that. That's a shippable product. That, that, that's not so location dependent until you need stuff. Because, I mean, that was another thing with Elijah Spring. So, no, we didn't do the community there. Imagine that we did, right? So now you need a part. Well, it's two and a half, three hours that's at it. least. If, you, if they have it when you get there, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, having access to parts and tools and things for repair, I, I think, are critical. And then whatever you're doing, you need bodies to sell it to. 
or to market it to. And if you were to do some sort of eco-tourism, right, where people come on Saturday and they get a two-hour tour for ten bucks a head or something like that, again, the further you are away, the more difficult actually attracting that market becomes. And I think that, like, you know, Susie Homemaker kind of thinks it's really kind of romantic and all to drive an hour through the, the, the winding roads to get to a place, but not to drive four or five or six, because then she got to turn around and go home. Right? Mm-hmm. So I think all of those things are very much location-dependent. I think another thing is, when I look at Elijah Spring, had we done a community there, it was very steep land. Yes, and, and it was. And I think that makes everything harder. I think it looks really cool. I think you can get all romantic about it. I think you can look at what Sepp Holzer did and talk about terraces and all that stuff. But I think in the end, there's a reason that land that's flat in general sells for you know more money than land that's really steep. And it ain't got to be flat like a pancake. In fact, I don't think it's good for it to be dead flat. But you know when you're when you're talking about 20 and 30 degree slopes and you know walking a mile in in linear. You're, you're, you've really only moved about 200 yards, you know, from an aerial view. I, I think that there's a there's a there's a real hurdle there to to putting in the infrastructure that's necessary. You put in a basic dirt road; it's very difficult to keep erosion down. I mean, we learned that in many different ways. So I think the lay of the land, in addition to the location of the land, has to be really critical. I agree. So are so, you are you making some type of shot at this right now or something like that? Or you mentioned something about a Kickstarter? Well, I, I did mention a Kickstarter. I've actually abandoned that. Okay. Um, and the main reason is is because these are going to be homes for people. Um, they really, you know, they, they should be involved with the whole process. It shouldn't be a one-man show. I agree with that. I agree with that. And, and I'm not that great at uh, – I'm great at big ideas, but details I have a harder time with. So <laughs> getting a, a detail-oriented person to work alongside me would really be handy. Um, but uh, – um, I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, let's kind of talk about how this, this could happen then in a theoretical standpoint. So, like, my original idea for, for Permanent Ethos was a, a like a 99-year lease model with – a central corporation or company holding the property. And one of the mm-hmm. reasons that I came up with that is because it, it 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 would centralize any interaction with the man, right? So property taxes are paid by a single entity, and it would also lower the barrier to entry. And, you know, when I started investigating that, it turned out that if you went to a bank for a construction loan with a 99-year lease, they treated it a lot like you own the property because the expense was just going to be rolled into the mortgage and what have you. So that there were plenty of examples of people that had gotten financing to build on a, on a you know a 99 year guaranteed renewable lease. And you know, will it really be guaranteed? Well, we'll all be dead. So I, whatever, right? You know, so like that was like a, a loophole there, and it also could have been staged in a way that created some level of cash flow for improvement. Because what I want to kind of talk about next is. What are your thoughts on the importance, if there is something like this, of there being some level of what you would call common property, community, community property, you know, shared resources? Because when I look at something like, let's say you said, build whatever the hell you want, right? As long as it doesn't make somebody come here and shut us down, build it however you want. And people start building off-grid and stuff like that. Well, like, if you have a laundromat, right, then 
that's something that if the person doesn't mind using a laundromat, they don't have to worry about that. You know, that type of thing. Or if there's a pond that's accessible to everybody, it's like a two-acre pond, well, that's a huge advantage to everybody. So how do you kind of think about those types of models? Okay, well, um, the one big difference between the uh, Permethos 1.0 model and um, what I'm suggesting is um, the uh, the main company actually builds all the homes. Okay. They're not they're not uh, made by each individual. Um, they can be built by the individuals if they so wish, um, but it's all owned by the same by the same company. They're all built exactly the same. And that way, um, they're easier to get uh, through the uh, inspection process. Once they've um, done one, then as long as you've done everything the same way, there's no way to say no to the next one type of thing. Right. And let's say that you uh, didn't want to uh, – you got there and you realized it wasn't for you. Well, you're not quite locked into it yeah. um, because you can go ahead and build – yeah, the, the idea in this community is to actually uh, pr- uh, make enough capital to um, build a second site and have the second site build two more and exponentially grow from there. Um, so, well, you may you may start off, you know, somewhere in Texas and decide, you know, what I'd really rather live in Florida. And there's another opening that's coming up, so I'll go ahead and apply for it. You'll be able to transfer without losing any money. Or you'd be able to exchange with somebody that wants to swap with you, I guess, if you did that. I think it's That's important right. to do one. I mean, I said during the intro when I was talking about this, like, I really believe that, number one, what I think, you think, and anybody else thinks is nice, but anybody that thinks they can do it should go do the best they can to get one done. And if mm-hmm. we can make one work, we can make a hundred work. If you make a hundred work, you can make a thousand work. And if you make a thousand work, you can change everything. But it starts with making that one that works. So what you're describing to me sounds, you know, like kind of a hybrid of what I was talking about because the one company still owns it. The person is basically leasing the space with the house already on it. I guess another option would be that people could consider would be more of a traditional development. So a traditional real estate development, a developer acquires um, 40 acres of land. They divide it up into, you know, uh, I don't know, 120 lots. And then you can go pick, and you have model A, B, C, and D of the houses that they build. And Mm -hmm. you can customize those, and then you buy it, and it's just your house. right? It's just your house. And that is, in a lot of ways, I can't remember what the place is called out in Davis, California. That's kind of how that was done. It was done with a very much of an intentional sustainability and stuff like that. But, you know, the person buys a house, it's their house. If they want to sell it, they sell it to whoever the hell they want to. And in right. some ways, that is, like when I asked you the question, like, what does the traditional housing market do well? That is, in a way, what they do well. Because, you know, who I sell my house to isn't your business, even if you are my neighbor. And I think there's some good about that. But I think with an intentional community, like, there, had, there would still have to be some kind of safeguard to that. Because, and I don't know if the community itself is a safeguard, right? Like, so, it, when one person so, moves into a place and they want to change everything, it doesn't really change anything if they're one person. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, when you have uh, 20 families uh, coming in from uh, the inner city, uh, it can really change your uh, block pretty quick. <laughs> yeah. And that's actually what happened in my uh, 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 childhood home. Uh, we went from a very safe, comfortable neighborhood to one that you did not want to live in uh, in about 10 years. 
And I like to thank the government for that uh, because if uh, they hadn't made the uh, home loans so affordable, then that would have never happened. Well, they didn't make them affordable. They made them uh, acquirable. It it still cost a hell of a lot of money, and a lot of these people got these loans ended up not being able to fulfill the obligations. But we started giving loans to people that didn't have the money to pay them back. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of those people, when they realized the mess that they were in, well, what they do, and I'm not putting anybody down for what they do to try to make their life better, but, you know, they phone up their brother, their sister, their mother, their uncle, whatever, and they end up with ten people living in a house that was originally built for four, mm-hmm. and they cobble together enough money to pay for it. Well, that's, I mean, again, I'm a libertarian. I, I don't want to prevent anybody from doing that, but when you have the demographics we do in the United States and you cause that to happen artificially, then there are consequences to doing that. And we do see neighborhoods get destroyed. And proof of that, I think, would be the converse. Watching people like the urban farming guys move in and start buying up all these dilapidated houses and changing a neighborhood to the positive. And everybody, nobody gets their ass in a wad when you say that, right? Oh, that's great. That's wonderful. So if you can move people into a neighborhood to make it better... It is absolutely ridiculous, social justice warrior, you know, unicorns on its face to say that the opposite can't happen because we've seen it happen. There's a house I used to own that I wouldn't want to live in today. And I bought that house in 98. That ain't that long ago. You know, and it's not in the inner city. It is, it is a mile and a half away from another house that I own that I would still live in, if that makes sense. Okay. You know? Uh, so. well, to, clar- to clarify, I got tired of the uh, gunshots ringing through the night. <laughs> that'll do it. You know, that'll do it. You get, well, you can get one police chief in it starts hugging instead of arresting gangbangers, and all of a sudden you can have the same problem. I've seen that happen too. <laughs> so, yeah, I think there's like there's a lot of ways to skin this cat, and I'd like yeah, to see I, it get done. You know, I'd like to see somebody I, do it in a replicatable model. Right. And I'd like to do it without asking people for a whole ton of money going into it either. Um, instead of asking for uh, the full price up front, what I basically do is um, the company absorbs the loan and the individual leases it like they would an apartment. Okay. Um, so they never have to go ahead and put any you know big uh, amounts of money down on the house. Although in the first uh, iteration of it, that may be the case. Um, just simply to get it off the ground. But you may have the, to. You uh, have to have like a founders group or something because, you know, houses aren't free. And, you know, like, so I don't mean to crab on your parade or nothing, but like whenever I start working out something that's going to be a financial thing, one of the first things I do is open up Excel and start building a model. Yes, like, they did have that. you started to do that with this yet to actually figure out like how much money would have to come in to be able to do this and what your timelines would be? Yes. Uh, so the, uh, uh I figured in 10 years, uh, which is the, the amount of time I feel that, you know, you could go ahead and get a house um, about the same acreage and be okay with the same uh, monthly payment, which I figured would be about $1,000 a month. Okay. Um, so to get an acre of land in a three-bedroom house in this area anyways, it's going to cost you between the 1000 and $1,200. Okay. So it seemed reasonable. Um, it would be a $1 million loan up front, and at the end of the second year, 
um, it would be there. That that's my crunch time. Okay. <laughs> if if I can't go ahead and make it at that particular junction, the uh, the rest doesn't matter. Or I may have to take out more money, one of the two. But uh, as soon as that second year is over with, everything starts flowing to the positive. Have you seen what type of interaction you're going to have with local governments with just the concept of a subdivision? And yes, um, go ahead. I've uh, uh, talked to a couple of uh, city officials, but the way that I did it um, was. Um, I was asking them about uh, building a campground, not a development. Mm. Okay, so I have 20 cabins in a campground. Um, that's something that they understand. They don't have to really think that hard about. That's interesting. Um, yeah. No, that's interesting. So, so, um. Because I want you to bring in infrastructure, too, without going through all the bullshit. That's right. And uh, things like uh, composting toilets um, would be really frowned upon in a home, whereas for a campground, that's perfectly acceptable. Does that get into any occupancy issues then, though? Because, like, you know, well, it's a campground. People, I've been living there five years. It's not camping anymore, that type of thing. I haven't 100% figured all of it out. That's fair enough. Uh, and that's definitely something that I have to uh, uh, work on. But um, the idea is that uh, eventually, uh, after 10 years, um, you are part of, part owner in that company. Okay. So um, a, uh, I've talked to several um, campgrounds where they have their owner living on site, and they've never had a problem. That makes sense. And sometimes they have more than one house, no problem. They can lease uh, land for agriculture, no problem. Okay. Because I mean, I think it'd be a cool idea just to like brainstorm some stuff that like what are different ways this could be done. So like one of the things I thought about doing if, if I took another shot at this, and I, I, it would take a lot to get me to do it honestly, because <laughs> just because uh, I've tried to learn my limitations on how much I can do in in, in one lifetime, but mm -hmm. was kind of the campground approach. And my thought was you could put in campground infrastructure that's designed for trailers, fifth wheels, things like that. And if somebody wanted to bring a fifth wheel there, I mean, that's fine. But one of the things that I actually have come to hate is tiny houses. Mm -hmm. Because of how they're marketed and because of how people, you know, you watch the shows and, well, we want to be able to pick it up and move wherever we want to. And it's like you look at the person and they're driving a freaking Prius and you're like, well, um, I hope you're going to live in a tent. And, and there's just a a romanticism and a misconception about them. However, as long as they're on wheels, they're basically classified as an RV. So mm -hmm. if you built a campground for RVs and then kind of were selective in the people that you leased a space to with a really long guaranteed lease that were people that were going to come in and build tiny houses that would be on wheels but might have like all these little additions for more space, then mm -hmm. you could get around with that. Well, there'd be no reason you couldn't do that and have 20 cabins as well. Like, So there's ways to like start to to work with this system because I, I agree with you. We So I, I don't know, are you familiar with what they call the scale of permanence, right? 
The, the scale of permanence is basically when you're designing anything, whether it's a, a permaculture garden uh, or a housing community or a car or anything. You have to look at the things around you that are restrictions on that design. And mm -hmm. the things that are the most permanent are immutable geographic structures. That would be a mountain, right? Like, you got if that mountain's there and it's a problem, you'd be tough, Or a coastline, or a river, like you're not changing that. Mm -hmm. the, the number two thing on the scale of permanence is laws and ordinances. You can change them, but it's a really long road. So the effective designer gets elegant and works within the restrictions of the things at the highest level of the scale of permanence. So we can sit around and bitch that the government hates all this stuff. Or we can say, like, so how do we work within the boundaries of their system in a way that they understand, but it, they really don't, I guess, if that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. You know, because, like, like, yeah, like it's a campground. And mm -hmm. I, I don't know that they really can. So if I had, like, one of, what it made me think of it, like, there's people, they buy a piece of ground and they want to build on it someday. But. They don't have their building permit or whatever yet, and they're saving money, so they take their off-grid RV and they, they live there. Or they put up a tent or a yurt or a shack or whatever, and they say they're camping. And the city or county will come along after a certain amount of time and say, you're no longer camping because you've been there too long. But I think if right. it's a permanent camping structure like a cabin, whose business of it is yours how long I've leased it to the person that's camping there? That's right. It, it seems like it is a pretty decent loophole. Hmm. Um, I've, I've known people that have uh, leased uh, cabins for years and years. Actually, their their, their fathers and their uh, grandfathers leased the same uh, uh, cabin out in the woods. So yeah, it, it is possible. It's, there's no no uh, uh, hocus pocus about it. Well, I mean, <laughs> my my niece and her at the time husband, when they moved to Hot Springs, Arkansas, and we eventually bought a house that we leased to them. Prior to that, for about four months, they lived in a thing they called a condo. It wasn't a condo. It was a cabin on the lake. And it was <laughs> it was a cabin that many people would rent in the summer for two weeks. Mm -hmm. But, you know, they moved there in the winter when they were, you know, that place was starving to put somebody in it. They lived there for 90 days. They received mail there. I mean, no one cared. So I, I guess that, you know, that could work. And I'm, I'm sure there's other ways that, you know, we could skin this. I, again, I like the concept of... The tiny house being used as the deceitful, you know, mobile home, right? It's right. because I know that works too. I worked for these people; they were building this huge house and ranch down in uh, a place called Goldthwait, but they were here for the part of the business that they were expanding, and they had a fifth wheel travel trailer, and they lived in a you know a little travel trailer type RV park right off the highway, and. 90% of the people in that park were full-time residents. But it wasn't a housing development. So I, I, I think there is something to that. that's. I've looked at a piece of land down the road that's like a mile away from me about doing that, but the guy that owns it is smoking crack. <laughs> I mean, you, you know what the ground's like around here for my videos and stuff, and he has 92 acres, and he has just recently dropped it to a stone dropping 1.85 million. And I think he's selling that property because he was drinking beer with a buddy in a bar one day, and he said, why don't you sell that land? He goes, I don't really want to sell it. And his buddy said, well, if somebody came up to you and offered you a certain amount of money right now, um, 
what is the number at which you'd say, screw it, take it? And he, he probably said, you know, 1.9 million. He said, well, put up a sign. You know, you, and I think that's kind of what this guy's doing. Um, but I think the other thing you have to have is the affordable land. And people can say land's affordable, but finding the right land that's affordable is a challenge. And I think that's something that we could make this sound easier than it is. Right. And another challenge would be turnover. Um, yeah. Some people would would wind up moving away shortly after they got there. Well, what do you do with that? You know, they've already gone ahead and started building their uh, our, their tiny home, and it's in pieces. And they decide, you know what, we're out of here. And they leave you a nice big mess that you got to go ahead and clean up. No, 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 no. You build your tiny home and you bring it there. That's <laughs> that's that's my solution to that one. I mean, and there's always any kind of think model you do. you do the same thing with a cabin, right? So like now you're in real deep because you got a construction expense you've got to refund and the person right. bails out on lease. So there's there's leases and contracts and that's all something we could handle. But yeah, I mean, you know, leaving a site completely trashed would would definitely be a problem, but I think with the right group of people that would become largely self-policing. Um because when somebody started to kind of go off the deep end instead of somebody calling the 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 department of making you sad, what you'd have is a whole bunch of other people going, "Dude, what do you need to fix this?" Okay. And, and, and you know you get kind of that with the like the initial thing is dude what do you need to fix it's like you're really concerned and then the next time it's kind of like dude what do you need to fix this <laughs> I mean so I think there's there's some of that one of the other things I think those imperative and we haven't talked about today and as I've kind of like this idea stayed in my head and I'll window shop land and stuff like the thing that's always stuck with me is and you kind of like glossed over it but I do think the ideal person to sell this to is the internet-based entrepreneur because I don't care if I really want to live somewhere else if I can hook up to the internet I'm good so land that would enable you to deliver high-speed internet and that was something like they actually had high-speed internet if you want to call out at Elijah Springs but it wasn't something that you could you know feed 20 homes with it wasn't going to happen So I think that's like a real critical thing that anybody looking to do this has to think about. Like, can I get, you know, DSL or cable modem to every structure? Or can I get, you know, um, a freaking, you know, gig line from Amazon into a central and, and become my own ISP? Like, if you can do that one way or another, if you can skin that cat, then that opens up the people that have a portable lifestyle, and can make the decision based on what they want versus what they would like to have type of thing. Like, Because I really could run this business from anywhere. And I think there's like there's millions of people like me out there. Mm-hmm. So that's that that's one of the big things. And I think that, like, so that's that's a lot of land I've looked at. You just go, it's not going to happen. It's, right. it's, it's, you're not going to do that here. And I, I think that's getting better. I think more and more rural broadband deployment is happening. I'll tell you where it's not happening. It's here in Texas. I mean, this is, like, I, it amazed me. When I went to Ben Falk's place, it was like this little tiny hamlet in the middle of nowhere. And then he was at the end of, like, several miles up this private road. And I'm like, so what do you do for Internet here? He's like, we have DSL. I'm like, you, 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 what? <laughs> you know? So, like, I think that, like, regionally that's another thing, too. So, like, in your area is that... You know, is there generally that type of access in rural communities? It depends on the area. Okay. Um, it really does. Um, like uh, the 
uh, the land that I used as my template for all this and I designed, um, they have uh, cable, and that's as best as they can get. Um, however, I think that if, you know, if we were to ask for a bonded T1 line, I think we could get it done there. The infrastructure is there. It's just... It's just a little bit further down the road, like um, even like uh, the water. Um, it's only 300 feet down the road. Uh, you have city water. Yeah. Um, but it's far enough off that you don't pay the taxes on, at least not yet. Yeah. They will go ahead and put uh, water down that street eventually, and you will have to pay taxes pay on taxes, it. Because you're part of the city services and things like that. Right. I mean, but about... I vacillate, right? Like, I vacillate. Like, what's the best way to do this? Is it to be tied into all that infrastructure? Or is it to build an off-grid community? Because the one thing I've learned about off-grid communities is a lot of these problems just go away. They yeah. just... They, but, man, it's a lot harder, isn't it? I mean, really. It is. It is. And the more remote it is, the harder it is. I'm not even saying remote. I'm just saying off-grid, right? Like, because, like, that's the one thing we have going for us around here. Like... There is all this crap about subdivision this and subdivision that, but if, if I had 100 acres and I took 60 of it and set it aside for people and 40 and set it aside for community and basically said, build your off-grid thing here. As long as I'm unincorporated, it's not a subdivision because it's not tied to the grid. It's also going to be 118 degrees today. Right, so I mean that, again, I think that like going off-grid, everybody talks about heat, but heat's easy. There's so many ways to make heat. Uh, cooling the structure, to me, is a lot more difficult. Right, and, and this is a very temperate area. Um, in fact, the home is designed for a cold, wet climate. Um, it, it could go ahead, I could probably figure out how to do a cold, dry climate or a um, uh, hot climate, but it's not what I'm used to. No, it, it, it takes more. <laughs> I mean, and like, so like my idea would be like the ideal piece of property would already have a house, okay? Right. But that house would be like sitting to the front of the property. And it would have, or already have services. And so it has electricity and things like that. So generally speaking, electric companies will give you more circuits and more power and whatever you want. So if you run a well and you pump water, and then you can create, you know, a water delivery system to these cabins, right? So now you have grid access to a structure, and then you could, if it's a campground, then, well, why are you putting in a, a laundromat? Well, for my customers. So, and I think that, like, that's kind of a way to hybridize it as well, and that's another way that I've looked at. Like, but if you did the campground thing, well, then you could have basically trailer pads, right? And then those trailer pads can become tiny house pads. And as long as that that's thing's right. on wheels, you know, and there's a lot of, like, so, I mentioned this RV park, and this is kind of, I've been thinking back 20 years trying to think of how to, what I've seen. So these people I worked for, um, they had their, their fifth wheel, and they needed more storage. So they got like a, I think it was like a 10 by 14 shed, like you see at, um, you know, Home Depots and Lowe's in the parking lot. And they had it installed there, and I'm like, what are you going to do when you leave? And they're like, we'll figure that out when we leave. And it was kind of people that had enough money that they didn't really worry about the fact that they had three grand tied up in the thing. But so that was okay. Well, if it's on your trailer, there's no reason power can't be run to that. There's no yeah. reason it couldn't be insulated. So now, like, well, that's and that's what it is. And then you know, you could make some agreement when somebody wants to leave if they, you know, maybe you 
maybe you compensate them in some way, but that then makes that space more valuable to the next person. It, it seems like there has to be a way to do this and get around all this bullshit some way or another. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I'm hoping to do. So where, where are you at in the process? Is it still like a, an idea phase? Are you... Are you ready to start talking to people about potentially being there? Do you have any kind of a website set up or anything going on like that? Or are you just kind of in this theoretical phase right now? A lot of it's theory right now. Okay. Um, I do want to go ahead and get a group together so that we can actually go ahead and nail down um, how this is going to work. Um, a lot of that, input, that uh, uh, work has already been done, but it's still flexible. Okay. So if we find out that 1,300 square feet is the right size for the house and we actually want it to be, you know, bigger or smaller or different orientation, all that stuff is still fluid. Or how we work the agreement with the leasee. Um, it's all, all fluid at this point, but it, it has a plan. Um, and um, the best way to uh, kind of get an idea for it um, is to check out uh, www.anthillliving.com. Okay. Let me write that down. There's a mailing list. Okay. There's a mailing list that you can sign up for, and uh, that's how I'm going to get this core group together. Okay. Um, I also have a Facebook group and, and uh, a YouTube page. When we do this, when we wrap this interview up, I'll have you just bang those over to me on Skype Messenger, and I'll make sure that they're in the show notes for people, um, the YouTube uh, channel and the, the Facebook group, because I think – I think Facebook is a fantastic means for communication of things like this. It's instant. It's easy. It works. Almost everybody uses it. I, I, I joke. I am the only person in the world with a millennial son that doesn't have a Facebook page. I, <laughs> um, so it, I think it's a great thing. And it, it's cool that you're you, you know trying to take a shot at this. And I, I think we need as many people to collaborate on it as possible. So uh, I'll make sure those resources are available to the audience. Very great. Uh, basically, they're all going to be anthill living. It's just uh, different uh, sites. Okay. Okay, cool, man. Well, hey, man, I, I appreciate you being with us today, uh, Rob. And uh, I really hope that you're able to make something out of this. And as you as you progress with it, stay in touch. You know, and we can make announcements on the blog for you if you got something going on, or uh, if some kind of special need comes up, or something like that. Uh, and I think people probably will want to get in touch with you. One of the things I've thought and It kind of amazed me when I had kind of the original idea that the the, the lock-in mindset people have that I had people lining up ready to buy, right? And it's like if you had a piece of land that somebody already owned, a lot of this stuff even gets easier if they wanted to be part of it. And you're like, well, you could end up keeping about 10 acres of it, having your own place on it, and get enough money in your pocket to go buy two more just like you already have. And they didn't want to do it. So I'm like, what, what, what is – because they wanted to hold on to it and have complete control of it. And I'm like, you can't have complete control of a community. It's not, not a community, no. right? Um, but right. I, I do think like people that have land that, they, that they're considering doing this like would be a good resource to have get in touch with you uh, as well. I hear from people all the time. I'll start forwarding to you because I'm not, I'm not a place in life right now where I'm not ready to try that again just yet. Um, but I'm okay. glad that people are. And, uh, again, I appreciate you being with us today. All right, thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, great interview. It'll be interesting to see how things go for Rob and his attempts there. Uh, with that, I want to remind you, if you like this show and the work that I do and you'd like to help support us, one of the ways that you can do that is simply by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T, 
T-S-P-A-Z.com. T-S-P-A-Z.com. Whenever you're going to shop online, go there first. Check out the Amazon deals of the day. And if you don't want any of those, just shop on Amazon. And anytime you go through tspaz.com before you shop online, you help support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do here. I also review items on a daily basis. And I have a new one for you today. I've been running on some, uh, we call them Encore items recently because... Here's the important thing you guys understand about the reviews I do of, of items on Amazon. 99% I own. A half percent that I don't own I've touched. About one half of 1% are items that have come to my attention that I haven't actually touched or used or owned yet. But everything looks good enough that I can recommend them. What does that mean? That means that I can't just every day go to Amazon, find something that looks cool and write a review about it and tell you to buy it. Because integrity. That's why. I can't do that because integrity. I think one of the reasons that the items I recommend are so um, so often purchased by this audience and that there's loyalty to this review process is because of that integrity. So today, I'll disclose right up, this is an item I have not actually touched yet. But I can't see how it could fail. Because it's a solid item with no moving parts and it's pretty daggone basic. But the way I found it, it started showing up in my sales reports. Hey, people in the audience are buying this. I should check it out. And I do that. I look at my sales reports and I say, oh, gee, look, there's like 10 of these sold this month. I've never seen this. That's how this came up. It's called the easy weight fermentation weight. And when you look at a picture of it at first, it looks like one of, like an old style glass ashtray. It's not an ashtray. I don't, I don't think I'll ever be reviewing an ashtray. I'm not a big, uh, big guy, that, a proponent of smoking. But what this does, and I've recommended products in the past called Pebbles that are part of a fermentation kit that do the same thing. If you do lacto-fermentation in mason jars, and you should because you should be fermenting, and it's one of the best ways to do your smaller ferments and lots of variety. It's very affordable. Um, one of the things that's a challenge with mason jars, no matter what kind of a lid, airlock, whatever you come up with, is keeping everything under the brine. There's a saying in, in lacto-fermentation. Keep it under the brine and everything will be fine. And that doesn't mean if you've actually matter if you've actually mixed a brine and poured it over something like, let's say, an escabeche, which is like carrots and jalapenos and onions, where you actually mix a liquid brine and put it over it, or you're making a kraut where you just basically mix the cabbage with salt and then the water comes out of the cabbage and makes its own brine. Either way, once that brine's there, you want all of the vegetative matter to stay underneath it. And if you do that, you almost can't screw it up. So these pebbles are these little solid pieces of glass that fit perfectly inside a wide mouth mason jar. And since they're solid glass, they're fairly heavy. Well, you make up your ferment, you put them in there, and they hold the stuff under the brine. Everything will be fine. Two problems I've had with them. And they're not big problems, but they make me like them, not love them. One, you set them in there, and if you don't get them just right, they kind of lean sideways and stuff gets out. So you want them perfectly level. And you can usually kind of finagle them that. Two, it's time to take them out. Specifically, it's time to take them out to test your ferment and you might be putting them back in. Well, now you got like a butter knife and you're kind of prying it. It just, you know, and you think, isn't there a better way to do this? And I had gotten to the point, if you still have those, I'll give you a solution. All you need to do, right, is make yourself a remover handle. Now, when I was in cabling, um, we had these... Big two double suction cup things with a, with a metal for um, like computer rooms in the flooring. They have these big 18 by 18 or 24 by 24 tiles. And they sit in a metal grid. 
and you pull those tiles up and you run cabling and infrastructure underneath the floor. When you take that suction cup dealy and you stick it on there, the tile pulls right out so you can access it. Well, what you do is you get some kind of little doodad or gizmo that has a little suction cup with it that sticks to a window to hang up like a picture of a bird or something. And you take that and you stick it on your pebble and it usually will pull out pretty well for you, depending on how good the suction cup is. Wouldn't it be better if it just had a built-in handle? That's what these easy weight fermentation weights do. They have a little groove in them, and you just reach in with your thumb and your two fingers and lift them right out. And that means when you put them in, they go in nice and level. They're really cool. They come to about $5.50 a piece. You buy them in a four-pack for $21.99. And uh, I, I think they're just awesome. They have great reviews. I can't find any complaints about them. And again, though I haven't bought this item yet, and it's important to me that I disclose that to you, what the hell could go wrong? It's a solid piece of glass with a groove in it. And it's one of those things that's so perfectly simple that you wonder why somebody didn't come up with it sooner. Give them a try. Again, I haven't ordered them yet, but I will be ordering a set today to go with my fermentation gear because they just make so much dadgone sense. Again, they're called Easy Weight Fermentation Weights. You can find them at the Survival Podcast in my most recent review or at tspaz.com. And again, every time that you shop online through tspaz.com, you help support me and the work that I do here at the Survival Podcast. And I do appreciate you for it. Um, next up, before we finish with our song of the day, I want to uh, talk about the YouTube channel of the day. I've been doing YouTube channel of the day recommendations. I've been going through y'all's list of stuff that you're sending me. And if you'd like to send me a channel for consideration, send it to jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com with TSPC YouTube in the subject line. Know this right now. If you send something to me today and I think it's fantastic, unless I start really watching the hell out of it, it's going to be a while before it shows up. Uh, because what I'm doing is probably a couple times a week I'm picking stuff from my own list, and then when I don't have one for that day, I go to your list, and the list has gotten long. I've got a lot of participation in this already. I'm not ignoring you, and I'm pretty much any legitimate channel that gets submitted to me eventually will get featured on the air. But today is not one that was suggested. It's one that I was recently watching, and I thought you guys would really appreciate at least one video on this guy's channel. Something some of you know about me, but many of you probably have no idea about. I am an enthusiast when it comes to aquariums, not just aquatics uh, and fish that we keep outside. And when we moved to Arkansas, I got rid of my, my fish, and I never got another fish tank up there. And then the beginning of this year, I went, you know, this is a thing in my life that I enjoy, and I need to bring it back in. And I got back into keeping tropical fish. Initially, I used the tanks to raise out some tilapia for my aquatic systems. And then I transitioned them into, like, community tanks and stuff like that. And one of the tanks has been empty for a while. It was a 55-gallon tank that I recently set up with cichlids. So, you know, whenever you're, you're doing something and you, you haven't done it in a while, you, like, wonder what's new. So you check out YouTube. So I was watching all these different fish videos on YouTube. And this guy, I mean, he might have stuff on cichlids. I really haven't looked. I don't think he does from his uh, intro video. But his guy is named Dustin, and he has a, a, a YouTube channel called Dustin's Fish Tanks. And the video that showed up that I thought was really cool that I wanted to share with you, in addition to his whole channel, was called The Ghetto Fish Tank. And he's basically talking to all these people that watch his channel, because I don't know if you know how big the hobby of aquarium fish is, but it's huge. It's massive, and you can waste a lot of money, or you can effectively spend a lot of money in this hobby, but there's a lot of broke-ass people that want to be part of this hobby, and they watch all these videos. So he was getting a lot of questions like, how do I get started for cheap? 
So he does this thing where he takes a 10-gallon aquarium that you can find for free that has a crack, and it shows you even how to fix it, how to make your own substrate, get your own plants, get the whole thing set up and running for like 10 bucks. And this is why I decided I wanted to put it on the air, though. There were so many comments, and I was thinking the same thing before I started to read the comments. There were things like, I don't even keep fish, and I watched this entire video. Because it's a way of thinking. It's a way of thinking that, hey, you know what? If I want to do this thing, and all these people that are doing it are doing it in a way that I can't, what is the way that I can? And I think that even if you're not a fish-keeping person, and even if you don't subscribe to Dustin's full channel, I think that if you... Watch that video. It'll help you with that mental process. So Dustin's Fish Tanks and the Ghetto Fish Aquarium, I have links to his main channel and that individual video for you today. By the way, how popular is his video on the Ghetto Fish Tank? Well, this is a guy that seems to get about 3,000-ish views on a new video, even though he has 98,000 subscribers, uh, which tells you this you know, high subscriber myth is, is really is a myth. That, like, it takes a lot of subscribers to guarantee views. Which is about what I get with 30,000 subscribers. I get about you know two to 3,000 views. Some of his videos have 10,000, 12,000 views. A lot like me. I don't have anything like this. His, this is the exact title of this video. How to set up a ghetto aquarium, the I'm broke, quick and easy. Okay? 1,067,446 views. And I think you should add to his view count, not because I want to help Dustin, but because I think the reason this video has so many views is, is not just because of aquarium enthusiasts, but because of the innovative thinking, here's how you can do something with almost nothing. And that's a big part of what we've been teaching on TSP for a long time. So check him out, Dustin's Fish Tanks. That brings us to our song of the day. The song of the day is by a band named Lucas Graham. And it's called Seven Years. John Adam did a good job picking this one out. We've been we've been really hitting hard with the the entire concept of you know time and you know, making the most of your dash lately. And this one sure does that. Here's a little info on this song. Frontman Lucas Frockhammer, which I probably got wrong, described Seven Years as a song about his life so far and what he hopes to achieve in the future. He said the reason for the lyrics only go as far as the age of 60 is because his father died at 61, and he needed to pass it to believe it. He continued, it's a song about growing older. I'm also coming into realization that being a father is the most important thing. My biggest dream is not to be some negative old dude, but to have my kid's friends say, you're going to visit your dad? He's awesome. And I had a perfect father. Regarding the band's prior failure to break into international markets, Frockhammer said, It's like my father died at exactly the right moment. I know that's something I shouldn't say, but I just did. My, if my father hadn't died in 2012, I wouldn't have written our song, Happy Home, which catapulted us into the Scandinavian success story. And I wouldn't have written Seven Years, which got us signed to a publisher in America and ultimately signed to Water, uh, Warner Brothers. Yeah, interesting. Um... This song also talks about things like letting go of certain people in your life as you mature and they don't. Like so you some of your best friends, like you're growing up and they're not, and you have to move on with your life because you can't stay where they are. John Adams said he can certainly resonate with that along with losing a father at you know a young age for the father. Um, and I think there's a lot of that. And I think there's a lot of people out there that maybe are, you know, it's great. It is great for you to say, I need to make the most out of my life and every day that I have. 
But I think people that have lost parents who died relatively young, sometimes they do keep score that way. I know some people very close to me I've heard do that. You know, my mother lived or my father lived too, so that's how long. That's not how this works. That's not how it's working, and thank God it isn't. We all have an unknown destiny. And sometimes, unfortunately, that destiny becomes pretty clear when we're diagnosed with a terminal disease or something like that, and there really isn't any hope. But, but up until such time, up until such time as we you know, lie on our deathbed, our, our future is unwritten. And it is up to us to make the most of it. And I think it's also up to us to find the thing in it that we most want to do. This gentleman here wants to be the greatest father in the world. Noble, noble goal. But as I've said many times, to do that, we also have to make ourselves happy. If you don't want to be some, in this man's own words, I don't want to be some negative old dude. If you don't want to be some negative old dude and you want your kids to love you, you have to first not become the negative old dude. You have to become the dude that wants to do great things. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Once I was seven years old, my mama told me, go make yourself some friends or you'll be lonely. Once I was seven years old. It was a big, big world, but we thought we were bigger. Pushing each other to the limits, we were learning quicker. By 11, smoking herb and drinking burning liquor. Never rich, so we were out to make that steady bigger. Once I was 11 years old, my daddy told me, go get yourself a wife or you'll be lonely. Once I was 11 years old. So I started writing songs, I started writing stories Something about that glory just always seemed to bore me Cause only those I really love will ever really know me Once I was 20 years old, my story got told Before the morning sun when life was lonely Once I was 20 years old See my goals, I don't believe in failure Cause I know the smallest voices, they can make it major I got my boys with me, at least those in favor And if we don't meet before I leave, I hope I'll see you later Once I was 20 years old, my story got told I was writing about everything I saw before Traveled around the world and we're still roaming Soon we'll be 30 years old I'm still learning about life My woman brought children for me So I can sing them all my songs And I can tell them stories Most of my boys are with me Some are still out seeking glory And some I had to leave behind My brother, I'm still sappy Soon I'll be 60 years old My daddy got 61 Remember life and then your life Becomes a better one I made a man so happy When I wrote a letter once I hope my children come and visit once or twice a month Soon I'll be 
Make yourself some friends or you'll be lonely Once I was seven years old Once I was seven years old 